0: We are here only because of the amazing love of God in Christ Jesus. I'd encourage you and invite you now to open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We are looking at verses 12 to 17 this morning. Actually, we will be... While wow, this is all one piece, verses 12 to 17 are all one piece, we'll look at just verses 12 and 13 this morning, and we'll save verses 14 to 17 for next week. But first Timothy chapter one, verses 12 to 17. Paul leads us to rejoice in Christ, and he gives us this testimony, his testimony of both his service and of his salvation. So follow along as I read this passage. Paul writes, beginning with verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent and a violent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study of God's word this morning? Father, this is indeed your word. We pray that you would create by it in us clean hearts and a steadfast spirit. And by your grace, O oh God, restoring To us, the joy of your salvation. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. More than 500 years ago, while the Reformation was still in its infancy, before Martin Luther had even nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door, in 1508, Michelangelo began his painting of the Sistine Chapel. And for four years, he painted and painted and painted. Four years it took him to paint that glorious, majestic, iconic work. But over the centuries, almost five centuries now, over the centuries, as the chapel was being used day in and day out, that work began to become increasingly clouded, increasingly uh, pale and lifeless, the colors pale and lifeless, as the the candles which were burning in the chapel began to burn and the, and the soot and the smoke and the grime began to wash out the colors of that painting. And so you would be forgiven if in the 1960s, early 70s, if you were to walk into the to the Sistine Chapel, if you would have thought that perhaps Michelangelo intended to use only pale, lifeless kind of colors. But in the 1980s, a restoration work began in the Sistine Chapel. and They began to wash away, very carefully, over a period of four, five years. They began to wash away the centuries of soot and grime that had begun to stuck to the chapel ceiling. And underneath, what they found was that Michelangelo had not used pale colors, but rather the colors that he had used were bright and visible, full of life, vibrant. And in doing that restoration work, they began to see and appreciate afresh the masterpiece that the Sistine Chapel was. And the reality is, for most of us, if you, have been a, if you have followed Christ, there is that initial joy. But over the years, it is too easy that the soot, that the grime of life wipes off, and the colors of our joy in God and what he has done for us become increasingly Diminished increasingly pale and lifeless. And what we need, by God's mercy from time to time, is for Him to wipe it all away. To do what we prayed for just a minute ago, for Him to restore into us the joy of His salvation. To appreciate afresh all that He has accomplished for us. We are always in danger of of fumbling that joy the fumbling that and, and losing it all together. But it is my prayer that today the Lord would be so merciful as to begin that work afresh in us. That he might help us to see the, the grace, the bright colors of his grace. And the testimony of Paul as he testifies to what the Lord did for him. And our hope is that this morning we will be able to, in seeing the the grace and the mercy of God, we would better see the privilege it is to serve him. Indeed, that appreciation is the very heartbeat of this text that we are going to consider. You may remember a couple weeks ago, in verses 3 to 11, we looked at the counterfeit Christianity that was being taught and propagated there in Ephesus, which Timothy was told to, uh, to silence the teaching of. He was to- told to oppose these, these leaders. He had leaders in verses 3 to 11 who were leading people astray. And it is perhaps that they questioned Paul's background. You can imagine these leaders who now Timothy is saying, hey, you can't do this, you can't live like this and teach the gospel. You can imagine them saying, well, what about Paul? I mean, don't you remember what kind of a scoundrel he was? And look at him! Now he's an apostle. Who does he think he is? Perhaps Paul sees that Timothy and we today need to be reminded of where our strength comes from. Of what God calls us to do. Of what kind of followers you and I are to be to Christ. But more than anything, it appears to me that Paul wants to remind Timothy, the entire church there at Ephesus... In each one of us today of the stunning mercy and grace of God in Christ Jesus. We are encouraged by this passage to serve God in whatever way he appoints, knowing that the same mercy that rescues us is the same mercy that calls us to serve and upholds us. And it is that and it is as we are reminded of the stunning mercy, the stunning supremacy the one we serve and upholds us that we are motivated. What we see in this passage is that Paul is filled with praise as he considers his own life and where he's at as an apostle. By this point, he's been serving Christ as an apostle for decades. And yet we see that he is still filled with thankfulness and joy you get a sense of that both at the beginning and at the end of this passage in verse twelve he starts off, "I thank and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, and at the very end, he is calling us to praise now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible to God, who alone is who, who the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He begins and ends this section with praise and thanksgiving when Paul considers his own life, his own ministry. What dominates his mind is not his, his abilities. It is not his gifts. It is not his unique station. It is not his personality. Is not When he credits what has brought him and made him successful, if we could use that term, he looks to the Lord with thanks and appreciation. What dominates the mind of Paul is the mercy and grace of God toward him. In fact, he mentions that twice. We see this in verse 13. He says, but I obtained mercy. And then again in verse 16. But I, for this reason, I obtained mercy. And I wonder what dominates our minds. What, what credit do we give to our success? To what, the, what, to what do we credit our standing that we might have? You may think, well, I have these skills. I have this experience. I have these qualities, this knowledge, this education, whatever it is. This is what allows me to serve so well in this capacity. Whether that be here at church, whether it be where we are scattered, serving one another, being able to help, counsel, serve one another, showing hospitality. I think we all naturally want to take credit for the things in our lives, for whatever spiritual good we may do, whatever gifts we may have. Whether it is raising our kids and seeing them turn out well, or our success or our position at work, or the quality of our marriage or our success in school, we can trace our success to life to any number of these things. We work harder than someone else. We're more responsible, we're more diligent. We're wiser. This becomes even more problematic when we consider our connection with God, doesn't it? Elders, pastors, deacons, and all of us who serve God in a variety of ways in the role of the church, in the life of the church, we may begin to consider that our lives, our ministries, is due in some sense to ourselves rather than by the mercy of God. We begin to take credit for what we do. The reason you serve and the reason I might serve is because of whatever knowledge we might have or abilities we might have, or perhaps it's just due to the fact that we are a little bit better people than someone else. We begin to take some small credit for our relationship with God. Sneaking in, smuggling in our own righteousness, footnoting our own good works, we begin to think that the reason that perhaps we are saved and someone else isn't is because of the advantages that we might have had, or, or we were perhaps wiser than someone else. We were smart enough to see the truth of something. We were humbler people, wiser people, or just more spiritual people. And Paul is going to, to pull apart at the threads of these ideas that stir within our hearts. And he does this first by what feels like kind of over the top language. I mean, he repeatedly describes himself in the worst of terms. I mean first we saw several designations the way he described himself blasphemer a persecutor a violent man and then he'll he'll describe himself as the worst of sinners the chief of sinners It all seems over the top a bit excessive But he does this to magnify the abundant grace of God that he says is overflowing exceedingly abundant so that we might see the absolute perfection of God, his patience with us. You can almost feel, as as you read through this passage, you can almost feel Paul's palpable joy that is just coursing through his veins. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. He begins, When when he begins his own Consideration of his own life, where he's at, what he's been through. It begins with thanksgiving and ends with praise. It is throbbing and coursing through these words and sentences. And what we see is, first off, in verses 12, that he begins to savor God's mercy that allows him to serve, that strengthens him to serve. He savors God's mercy in his service. We see this, that he, he roots his service in the, in the sovereignty of God. We see this in verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me or strengthened me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Or We might say, translate that, not just putting me into the ministry, but appointing me into his service. And it is God's appointment to Paul It is God's appointment of Paul that matters, not his own. And Paul's story is the same as every one of us, isn't it? We do not appoint ourselves to serve God. He is the one who appoints us. We may desire to serve him in some way, but until God appoints us, until God appoints where and when and how we serve, we We cannot, we may not. We may aspire to serve Jesus in some way. But we serve at his mercy. His timing is not our timing. His ways are not our ways. We may have grand visions of what God wants us to do. And he may call us to lives of ordinary faithfulness. I'll never forget one of the professors in seminary. A gifted theologian, a man who not only knew his Bible well, knew doctrine well, but a man whose heart you could tell by the way he talked about the Lord, by the way he opened up the Bible and and explained things. Here was a man who enjoyed God. But that man saw his wife suffer a significant health crisis. And so, by and large, he gave up teaching so that he could work another job that would provide the health benefits that were needed, and he would teach just on occasion, just one course at a time. I'm certain that at the beginning of his life he had grand visions of what he was going to do, how he was going to teach, how he was going to train other pastors and leaders. And this story goes on and on. It can be told not only by many seminary professors or pastors, it can be told by many of us. We have ideas about where our life is going to go and how God is going to use us and what the Lord is going to do, but the Lord has other plans. And when we see him, when we stand before him, we will find that his plans, they're not just other, they were better. Paul serves at the mercy of God because God is his sovereign. He roots his service in God's sovereignty, but not only that, he roots his service in God's strength. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me. Now, we think of that word enabled here, today, rather, When someone says, oh, he is enabling that person, we don't tend to think of that as a good thing. The word here is strengthened. God is strengthening Paul to do what he has called him to do. God not only appoints Paul to ministry, but he he fits him for the ministry, for the service that he calls him to. Matthew Henry writes this, those whom Christ puts into the ministry, he fits for it. Whom he calls, he qualifies. The point is this, we do not serve Christ, no matter where he calls us, no matter what area of life, we do not serve the Lord out of the reservoir of our own strength and abilities. We serve out of the strength that God alone can provide. God is the one who calls us and then he, he fits us for the place where he puts us. You wonder, moms, where am I going to get the energy to deal with another crisis with the kids, with another issue at home? How am I supposed to follow the Lord in a marriage in which my husband or my wife is not walking with Christ? God fits us. He strengthens us to do and to serve in the place where he calls us. You may work in a company that opposes outright the things of Christ. And you may find it difficult to follow him there. You may feel the pressure daily to be silent about matters. You wonder, how can I live in a world like this? How can I work where I'm, I'm just supposed to be quiet, I can't speak my mind, and I'm supposed to endure that which is regularly, it's held up as right, but I know it's wrong. God strengthens you for that. When we think of our ministry and our service to one another, Where do you get the wisdom to counsel someone when they come to you? We may not think of it like counseling. It just doesn't generally happen like that. But it it starts in the lobby. It starts with a phone call. It it, it, it starts over coffee. You're exchanging pleasantries. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. And have you ever noticed we're all fine? And And then as the conversation goes a little deeper... And the layers get pulled back. You find out that it's not fine. They begin to tell you, "This is what's happening." I don't really know what to do. And you're thinking in that moment, "What do I say?" You do not serve out of your own strength. You serve out of the strength that God provides. You can, in that moment, call on Him, and He will grant you wisdom when you lack energy to to serve in the place where you have committed. God provides the strength. How am I ever going to be able to care for the kids in the nursery? If it was me, I don't know how I would possibly do that. You ladies, you are heroes who are able to do that. Just incredible. If I have to hold one more crying child, I'm holding six right now. How can I do more? I'll put some down. The Lord will give you strength. He will uphold those who serve him. He will grant abilities beyond anything we know. Friends, let us remember that if we serve out of our own strength, we will never serve outside our own comfort. And I so so fear that many of us are robbing ourselves of ever seeing and knowing God's incredible strength. I so fear that we are robbing ourselves of the great experience of God's provision, his merciful provision, because we want to stay safe, we want to feel safe, we want to stay where we are secure and confident. We rob ourselves of ever seeing God work. I remember being in college, Which I would like to say is not too long ago, but was farther along than I like to admit. And a friend of mine who had gone to high school with, between our, I can't remember one, one of these summers. He, like me, needed to work every summer as much as humanly possible to be able to afford to come back to school in the fall. But I remember that spring, as, as summer was approaching the Lord began to work on him to join with another group of people to go on a 10-week mission trip during that summer to China. The cost of the trip was going to be great, and he was encouraged to write to friends and family and his church back home and to elicit to see if, to, to get some support. And we prayed about it. We talked about it. And I have to be honest, my thought was, brother, man, you, you can't do this. You've, you've got bills. You've got to, the Lord has called you to go to school, you know, just going, it seems presumptuous that the Lord is going to provide for you. It it seems like, I know it looks like faith, but it, it, it just looks like a lack of wisdom. And he was completely understanding that him going on this mission trip might result in the fact that he would have to stay out of school four years so that he could work. But he was willing to do that if necessary, but he felt that the Lord really wanted him to go on the trip. And so he wrote out the letters, sent them out. And we prayed. And the Lord provided. And the Lord kept providing. And the Lord provided more and more. He, he had to write to all of his supporters, please stop supporting me. I have more than enough. And they kept sending him money. He had enough to help some of the other people who were on his mission team to be able to go to China. He had enough to pay for his next year's school. And he did it because he didn't try to stay safe. We serve out of the Lord's mercy, out of the Lord's strength. We serve because he calls us to, in the ways that he calls us to. Oh, friends, trust in the Lord. Serve out of his strength. Risk stepping out of your comfort zone. Paul roots his service not only in the mercy of God, sorry, in in the sovereignty of God, in the strength of God. He serves the Lord in, he roots his service to the Lord in God's work in him. In verse 12, Paul says, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me Because he counted me faithful, trustworthy, appointing me to his service. And at first when you read that, it sounds like, it sounds as if God gave him this service because God thought that God saw and evaluated Paul that he was going to be good and faithful and trustworthy. And so there was something about Paul, some quality in him that put him there in that service. But that's not at all what Paul is saying. This wouldn't make any sense because what we see in verse 13 is the exact opposite Paul was the exact opposite of, of being faithful or trustworthy. The point is that Paul was faithful and trustworthy because he was strengthened to be so. And Paul brings these three indictments against himself. Verse 13, although I was formerly a blasphemer, this is an action of those who oppose God denying Christ Jesus, Under the law, this is uh, under the law of God in the Old Testament. This carried a, a penalty of death. This was part of the reason Christ was crucified. The charges that were brought against him were blasphemy because he claimed to be God. This was part of the reason that Stephen was stoned because he preached Christ, the Son of God, crucified and risen again. And Paul. And having opposed Christ, though he had a zeal for God, he had been blaspheming God. He understood that he was under, worthy of God's condemnation. This is a, a sin of the mind and of the tongue. Blaspheming, thinking less of God, diminishing his glory, speaking lies about him. But not only did he sin with his words and mind, He sinned with his actions. He was a persecutor, he calls himself. Although I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, here we have Paul admitting his role in the persecution of the church. That which we read about in Acts chapter 9. In verses 1 to 6, where Paul was zealous to harass the church violently. He zealously, violently hunted down believers. And in Genesis, we read that those who bless God's people are blessed, those who curse God's people are cursed. And Paul, here cursing God's people, acting violently against them, deserved the curse and the judgment of God. And if blasphemy is a sin of the mind and work, mind and thoughts, this is a, this is a sin of the hands, of actions. But he goes even further. He describes himself here, the New King James translates this not only as a blasphemer and a persecutor, he is also an insolent man. That is, he is a, a violent man. This gives us a window. Paul is giving us a window into his own heart. When Paul described himself pre Christ, He was a man who was violent in his heart. The text tells us in Acts that he breathed out threats and murders. That is, he was a man who took pleasure in committing violence against Christians. This isn't just a, a sin of blasphemy of the thoughts and of the words that he said. This is not just a sin of violent actions. Now we see that here is a problem with his own heart. Here is a man whose heart is quick to shedding blood. He wanted to do violence. He enjoyed it. Sure, it was, had a thin veneer of religious zeal, but it was wicked. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 summarizes this well. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. That was the Apostle Paul. the question is, how could a man like that be appointed to a position of service within the church? I mean, how is that possible? We're talking about all the people in the world worthy of being canceled out. That was Paul. Though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, a violent man, but I obtained mercy. But I obtained mercy. There are no more powerful words than this. There are no more true words than this, not just for Paul, but for for any of us. Each one of us is, is called to serve Christ in some way. What, what would qualify us to serve him? You and I are not worthy to clean toilets in this building. We are not worthy to, to mop a floor to sweep up the smallest crumbs. What would fit us but nothing but the mercy of God? God. we are all called to serve the Lord in some way. It may be age or available time that limits our ability to serve in the life of the church, but we are all called to serve in some way. It may be primarily through prayer. It may be primarily discipling at home, work at home, making phone calls, writing cards, writing, making phone calls, writing texts that encourage one another. We are called to serve, serve Christ, at home, in our families, at work, at school. We are the servants of Jesus. We are the servants of Jesus by his mercy alone. For those who serve Jesus in visible ways, whether you're a Sunday school teacher or a Bible study leader or a small group leader, whether you serve in center shot or Bible clubs, or as a musician or an usher, was a deacon or an elder or a pastor. Have you begun to credit yourself for your service in some way? Are you beginning to think that the fundamental reason you have been placed where you have or you are able to serve where you are Is because you are responsible, because you dress nice, that you've been going to this church for a really long time and and length of time here, length of years has particularly qualified you for whatever area, role you now serve? Have you begun to believe that the thing that qualifies you the most to, to serve others is because you know a lot about the Bible or have studied it a lot or you are able to talk well in front of a group You who serve as deacons, elders, or we as pastors, have we forgotten the privilege it is to serve Christ? Have we fooled ourselves into thinking that the reason God has put us here is because we are spiritual or gifted in some way? Brothers and sisters in Christ, the fundamental qualification for any service to Christ. Is the mercy of Christ. And when we forget that, we turn from serving Christ to serving ourselves, our own interests, our own purposes, our own aims. More than that, when we forget that we serve out of the mercy of Christ and upon the mercy of Christ, We, we forget the privilege that it is to serve. We begin to serve when it's convenient for us, when it's not too cost effective, when it doesn't take too much time or too much money or too much gas. We serve when it's beneficial for us. And if there there is suffering or there is cost to be paid, we'll find an excuse out of it. But anything we do as followers of Jesus is only because of the mercy of God. Because God himself has shown us mercy through his own son, hasn't he? Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, that is, if you have not Trusted in Christ alone for your savior, as your savior i'd encourage you to do so that you may know this mercy. God owes you nothing he has owed none of us anything anything except his judgment and wrath. But God in His mercy has sent His Son into the world and Christ having come, He lived and was obedient and righteous where you and I fail every day. And Christ went to the cross and suffered in the place of sinners so that all who anchor their whole lives to Him, all who turn from going their own way and trust and follow after Jesus, God, pours out his mercy upon them, fitting us for heaven, fitting us for service. But this raises one last important question. If Paul is a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, if this guy could receive mercy from God and serve as a Christian leader? Why can't the church leaders that Paul is confronting or talking, telling Timothy to confront in verses 3 to 11, and which he's going to confront again and again in this small book, why can't they serve? Why can't they teach? Sure, there's been some moral failures. Sure, they've been teaching some wrong things. But why can't there just be the same mercy and forgiveness for them that Paul himself has experienced? Why are they, in verse 3, Paul tells Timothy, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. He wants them to silence these guys. And Paul gets mercy and forgiveness? Is this a double standard? The answer Paul tells us is at the end of verse 13. But I attained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Paul's not excusing his actions of being a persecutor and a blasphemer and a violent man. He's not saying, hey, hey, I was ignorant and I didn't know better. Therefore, what I did back then is okay. That's not what he's saying. We know this because everywhere in the Bible, unbelief and ignorance of God are not viable excuses. In fact, they are themselves worthy of condemnation. They are sins against God. John chapter 1, we read that Christ came into the world. The Creator, the Word, came into the world that He had made. And the world, the world that He had made, did not know Him. And it wasn't merely that they are ignorant of Him. It's that their lack of knowing Him, they themselves were culpable for. and Their faithlessness, Paul's faithlessness at this point in his life... His lack of faith in Christ isn't excusable. It is, he is himself guilty of it. Which is why, verse 14, he is able to say, but the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He needed God to supply the faith and the love which are in Christ Jesus. And it was overflowing. Now, what Paul is saying here is he's not trying to make some excuse... Why his sin is okay, because back then he was ignorant and unbelieving, as if that's a fit reason. Paul's point is that he sinned in this way as a persecutor, as a blasphemer, and as a violent man. He sinned in these ways and many others. He sinned as a non-Christian. What makes Paul's situation different than those false teachers? than these teachers, who are, so these teachers and leaders who are no longer supposed to be leaders or teachers within the church. The difference is that Paul, when he was engaged in these things, which would have disqualified him from service, he did them as a non-Christian. And these men, these are, these men are teaching what they know to be wrong, what the scriptures themselves make clear is wrong. And they are themselves engaged in moral failures now as Christians, when they ought to know better. And Paul's point is, their words and their works disqualify them from that service. And it's not hard to find Christian leaders all around our country and world who have departed from teaching the word of God, who have engaged in serious moral failures. It it seems... Every month or so, there is another example of a prominent pastor of a large church or some large Christian leader who is found out to have committed some, some crime or some, or had some moral failure. And there's a pattern that has emerged in recent years that these, these pastors, these church leaders, these Christian leaders... They get removed from their church's leadership. They hire some prominent Christian counselor. They make some sort of apology. And then they enter right back into the positions of leadership, either in that same church or in another church. This happens again and again and again. And when they make excuses for it, they will simply say, hey, God is merciful. He's forgiving. You ought to be merciful. And just allow us to continue and to come right back. What we need to see here is that there are some failures that when we commit as Christians, we disqualify ourselves from some areas of service. That is when a Christian leader is determined to fly in the face of Scripture and teach what he wants. Or a Christian leader who claims to be following Christ, but is secretly engaged in serious moral sin. Their words, their works can disqualify them from continuing in service. It is not that they cannot receive God's mercy and forgiveness. They absolutely do. But it is one thing to receive God's forgiveness and it is one thing, it is in something else entirely to be restored to a position of leadership. Paul's point here is that he obtained mercy He is is able to continue in the service because what he did before, he did it as a non-Christian. And friends, this reminds us of one last truth. That we dare not take our sin lightly. That we dare not treat it with kid gloves. That we do not coddle it, we do not protect it, we do not excuse it or secretly feed it. Turn from it. Repent of it. Plead with God to help you deal with it. Confess it to another brother or sister. Enlist their help, their prayer, their accountability, their support. Do all that you can, in the words of Paul in Romans 8.13, to mortify sin, that is to kill it, to put it to death. We serve at the mercy of God. We serve in light of the mercy of God. And if God has shown us so much mercy, how dare we serve him in ways that would lead and hurt his church? And sin will destroy not only us, it will destroy others. So, brothers and sisters, Let us serve and live in light of the mercy of God. Let us fight against the sin that will so easily destroy us and savor the mercy of God in all of our service. Let us serve Christ in light of the mercy that he so generously gives us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have been enormously, abundantly, overflowingly merciful toward us. and We are not deserving of such mercy, which is what, what makes your mercy so astounding. You are kind to us when we deserve condemnation. You are loving toward us and we deserve your anger. You are merciful, and we deserve your justice. But in Christ, you have made us your own. And by Christ, you have showered us with mercy, called us to serve where you have put us, in light of that mercy, strengthened us by that mercy. And call us to live in light of that mercy. O oh, Father, may we serve you with gladness. May our hearts be filled with praise for you, for you have shown unending grace toward us. Work in us, oh Lord, according to the mercy in Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.